Kenny came walking back. He said, hey, go sit up front. Wayne wants to talk to you. And Wayne sat me down beside him. He said, hey. He goes, what the hell are you doing out there? <laughs> I, uh, I said, well, what do you mean, man? I'm out just out there racing, having fun. He goes, Swanson, he says, I can see it in your eyes. You're not having fun, buddy. He goes, and if you don't get out of it right now, you're going to end up hurt. Episode 39, Tank Slapping Podcast. We are at it again. We got another world champion on board this week. Back to back. Sneaky Sam. We're sneaking these world champs right onto our show. Who we got, Sammy? Who we got on the show today? None other than uh, our last guest, main rival, uh, you know, Kevin Schwantz, man. Kevin Schwantz. Yeah. Excited would be an understatement. The legendary guy. I I haven't had a chance to t- chat with him much, man. I, I'm I'm excited just to talk with the guy and get some insight. He's done some flat tracking, but obviously he's a 1993 Grand Prix champion. You know, he had a career in Superbike, did NASCAR. He's designed racetracks. He's just a legendary guy, man. They actually retired the number 43 in Grand Prix race in MotoGP because of Kevin Schwantz. You mean 34? 34, my bad. <laughs> Just like Did I say now. 33? <laughs> yeah. I've had a few beers tonight. 34, man. He's got the legendary 34 logo even. Like, it's the, the Schwantz 34, man. It's it's pretty epic. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's awesome, man. I'm excited to talk to him. Yeah, and, you know, just cool little fun fact. He's the most successful motorcycle racer, I think, in the world that was born in 1964. No one topped him. No motorcycle racer born in 1964 topped him. Okay. I, I, yeah, I dug deep on that one, but I pulled that one up. Just a little, little something fun. That's a crazy stat. You sound like Sports Center now. Like, I know, all right? <laughs> he's the first one to average 30 points, six rebounds, and seven assists since 1938. <laughs> hey, baddest dude from 64. <laughs> That's wow, dude, he's phenomenal. Like His riding style was... Everyone, everyone liked him in Europe, you know, not, I mean, he did, did really well, but his riding style was, it was wreckers or checkers. A lot of the time he might dare we say the rusty Rogers of Grand Prix. Racing. <laughs> that is, you know what? That is, uh, you, you might you, well said, Corey. <laughs> yeah. 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 You hit the nail on the head with that one. Schwanzy Senate, man. And, uh, I'm a little pissed. I said number 33, that's still eating at me, but 34, dude, he's going to, if he, if he knew I said that, he'd be like, come on, dude, get it together. But 34, Kevin Schwantz, we're going to have him on the show. I want to give a shout out to our sponsors. we got some new ones on board. I want to make sure we, we thank them and hopefully you guys can support them for uh, supporting us and supporting the sport. Bell Power Sports, check out bellhelmets.com to view their full line of products. Great products. We talk about them a lot, but yeah, give them a shout out. Hit them up on social media. Roof Systems of Dallas, Texas, Jerry Stinchfield. Hit up his website at commercialroofsystems.net. Send him a message on social media and thank him for supporting our sport and supporting the podcast. Our new sponsor, DID Chains. They have been the driving force behind countless championships since 1933. Entrust DID quality chains and their winning tradition for your race program today. What drives you? Check them out on social media, Instagram at DID Chains. Phenomenal product. The brand speaks for itself. 
everyone knows about DID chains and all the championships they've won in various disciplines. And we also want to give a shout out to AIM Sports. They are the worldwide leader in motorsports data acquisition, displays, and sensors. Many top teams in the American Flat Track Series and other series around the world use AIM. Shout out and a godspeed to Bill Tooman, one of the factory Indian wrecking crew members. He has five career Grand National wins, one of the legends of the sport. He was 99 years old. I remember seeing Bill at, I think it was Rapid City when they released the new Indian FTR 750. I'm pretty sure he was there and... Man, it's it's a shame yeah. to lose somebody like uh like Bill Tooman, man, and uh and also I don't know if we mentioned it either, but Everett Brashear, I don't know if we mentioned that or not, but uh he he passed away. I think it was a couple of weeks ago, and that that bums me out. We we didn't we didn't give him a shout out as well. Godspeed to uh to both of them. Yeah, yeah, Bill Tooman, one of the you know like you said, Corey, one of the uh you know original wrecking crew, one uh. I think five nationals, 99 though years old. That's a good run. And uh, like you said, uh, Everett Brashear, want to you know say Godspeed to both of those guys. And and um, actually one other guy, uh, another legend of the sport, guy that won um, nationals and then went on to tune for many people. Uh, all the way from, I mean, shoot, uh, uh, he was involved with the Yamaha team, Kenny Roberts, Rex Beauchamp, uh, right, right, right up to you know Kevin Barnes and Sammy Halbert and Dominic Calendras, and I mean the list Corey goes on Texter. and on and on. Corey Texter, that's right. Uh, you, you're the first guy to ride a Yamaha, right? The mm-hmm. twin, uh, and we're talking about none other than uh, Babe DeMay. So Godspeed to 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 all all three of those uh, fine gentlemen. Yeah, for sure. Um, We want to talk a little bit about, I guess we'll chat about the Harley news, Vance and Hines and Harley kind of breaking up. uh, Yeah. 20-year partnership, dude. I didn't see that coming. Did you see that coming? Uh, No. I never know what's going to happen. I heard rumblings um, just within the paddock. Um, It's a shame, though, man. it, It really is. I think... Vance and Hines, they add a really professional program to our series and to the sport. And Terry's a guy that likes to win. He he definitely puts a lot of effort in. And they had a really cool professional-looking team. And it's kind of interesting. People have asked me what my thoughts are. And I, I don't really know, man. I, I don't know. I really don't. I don't have a strong opinion just because I don't know enough about the deal or the bikes or what what everything was laid out. But Hopefully, Harley. I saw they're going to stay on board. I guess Rispoli is going to get some support for the Super Twins next year. I don't know if it was meant to be official, but they kind of dropped that in the press release, um, which I'm kind of pissed about because I wanted to race with James again next season. So maybe he'll change his mind, ride production again. It's kind of what my plan is. But um, yeah, I, I don't know, man. Hopefully, Harley can stay involved. And I'm a Harley kid. I grew up in a Harley dealership. I bleed black and orange. I I'm a Yamaha supporter now, but I've always I've always been a, a Harley guy, and I just want to, without them in dirt track, it just wouldn't be dirt track. So hopefully they can stay involved and, and keep it going. Yeah, you know, I guess uh, I guess both Harley and Vance and Hines will still be involved in, in some aspect. Uh, you know, Vance and Hines does, a, um, you know, they have some engine packages and uh, uh also with with their exhaust and i don't know to you know what extent they'll be involved but i know they'll 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 still have a presence in the sport um and then uh harley you know i guess it's kind of cool they're bringing the dealers back in a way trying to get those guys involved and, and um you know there's so many legendary dealers out there that uh 
that have become household names because of the sport, you know, like Lancaster Harley's one, obviously the, you know, White's Harley Davidson, Bartels, Maroney's, you know, uh, so, so many different Harley dealers, Weeblers, I mean, Remans, I mean, Rotors, we can go on and on and on it forever with, you know, Smitty's, man, don't get me on a roll. There's so many Harley dealers that have uh, played a, a big role in people's racing careers. And that's my hope with it, you know, that Harley, uh, you know, trying to get these dealers involved, maybe we'll, we'll see uh, some more help, you know, for the smaller guys. So that that's, that's the best I can hope for. Yeah. But... I got to interrupt you again, Corey. Did you officially just drop the news right now that you're going to be production twins next year for sure? You, you said it. <laughs> I mean, that's that's uh, the game plan, man. Right. That's, that's what I'd like to do, and it, I'd like to stay with my boys. And it's looking – signs are pointing that way. So, yeah, stay tuned, I guess. The, the sooner I can wrap up what I'm doing, the less I can worry about. So I'm just trying to get back to riding and training and – getting ready I, I hate silly season dude it's been so fucking stressful i i'm i hate it like everyone's like oh you're enjoying the off season it's like dude i enjoy the season because all i gotta do is race and train um now i'm doing all this other stuff like i just want to race and train like i want to be a racer and i i've learned to appreciate that during the season more it, you know i've i've learned to appreciate that like once you have your deals in place it's just like it's it's awesome man it's just really cool to be able to go racing every year and no matter how good you do or what happens, you always have to go to work during the off season. It's never nothing for certain. That's the grind time. That's Even if you have contracts, time. dude, it's like it's just ah, it's stressful trying to line up all your shit. It's it's just not a fun time for a racer. And you guys are probably listening, saying, "Oh, get over it." All right, well, I am. <laughs> I'm just I'm just. Just saying, it's tough. It's a tough. All the work happens now. That's for sure. No doubt about it. Um, you know, switching gears, Corey, there's uh, a bunch of changes, uh, I guess, within the series rule book. Uh, what are some of those changes? Ah, it was a shit ton, actually, man. Uh, age for production. I'm going to say I think this might be the Dallas Daniels rule. I don't yeah. know, man. That's kind of that's yeah. what I thought. Uh, change the age for production twins from 18 to 17, and you have to be top three in singles or, um, yeah, singles points, I think it was. I don't know. But, yeah, I kind of. I guess that might be a, a, a hint that Dallas might be running production next year, which would be amazing. Um, the more competition in that class, I think it's good for the sport. I thought I heard him say he was going to run the number one in singles. Um, but now another rule, Sammy, is you can't ride two classes. So I, I guess they have some deci- decisions to make. I don't know what they're what they're going to do. That was... It just seemed like the, like the Dallas rule. I mean, just changing changing the age if you if you were top three. So that's uh, it Dallas. changes it up, man. It really does, you know, because he was uh, he wasn't uh, eligible for the production twins not until June, I guess. Yeah, yeah, right before Lima, right? Because that's when he yeah. started. Yeah, that was his first 450 race was Lima, because uh, that's when he turned 16. So, and, yep. you know, last Saturday and in, uh, in the month of June is one of the baddest of the baddest Lima, Ohio. Yeah, no, I think it'd be cool, man. Dallas is a good rider, and that would add some um, credibility, some more credibility to the class. If James is going super twins racing, we definitely need some some more boys in that class or fast girls, boys, whatever. Um, but yeah, we'll see we'll see how that goes. And uh, so that was an interesting rule: the multiple classes you can't do that anymore. We'll call that the Chad Coast rule. Um, <laughs> I get a few guys have done it, but uh, yeah, Chad is. Chad's the one of the the main guys that done that has done it. I actually I didn't I was gonna text him today and 
see what he thought about that. I forgot to do that. Um, and then, yeah, there's some pretty interesting rules, Sammy. Uh, we'll t- we're not going to touch upon all of them, but production bikes that race in the Super Twins class. So I guess essentially the uh, the Yamahas, they can u- now use speed sensors, countershaft and transmission speed sensors, um, and any other you know type type of sensors that uh, they transmit info into the ECU along with uh, throttle bodies with electronic um, throttle control, fly-by-wire, or secondary throttle plates. Kind of, dare I say, traction control on the um, on the, the, the production bikes in the Super Twins class. So opening up a lot, a lot of stuff there, man. What do you I think? I am shaking my head, yes. <laughs> That's... Um, <laughs> That could be some MotoGP shit, man. Um, it can make the bikes really, really good, or it could not make a difference at all. I, I think you, you know, you need to have guys that can tune that shit. Um, Essenson has the budget to hire the right people, so I'm sure. I'm interested to see how that'll play out because that could be big. Very yeah, the big. sport's getting a little more uh, sophisticated, I guess. A little technology, you know. We're 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 making strides. I like oh, that. I saw that. And I, I started freaking out. I'm like, oh, <laughs> shit. I was like, we got to do all this stuff, like, for production. I'm like, dude, like, that's going to make, you know, that's it's going to make whoever's got the, the most money can hire the right people. Like, I, I don't think that has a place really in production or even the singles class. I think you need to keep those rules, you know, pretty ba- as basic as possible to give everybody a fair shot. But I guess in per- in the Super Twins It'll be interesting to see. I, I don't know, man. I, I'm not like a. We'll have to call have Bill to, Warner. We'll call Bill yeah, Warner call and Bill see what Warner. he thinks. I'll have to rethink this, man. I'll really, you know, I'm just hearing this right now with you, but I'll have to think about it a little bit. You got some solid points there, you know, you do. Well, they can also, I don't know what the hell this means, but they can also alter the OEM cylinder firing order. What does that mean, Ooh. Sammy? You're a tech. Well, yeah, man. I mean, they could, uh, you know, for example, like they used to do with the Harleys, man. They made them twingles, right? They all, all altered the firing order, made them fire at the same time, making it like a big single, made those things hook up a lot, you know, better. Uh, so, and then that got outlawed. Uh, you know, that was sort of a traction control kind of a thing. So, you know, yeah. changing the firing order uh, of cylinders, man, could, could also work as a traction control uh tool you know so yeah that could totally that's a whole different you know ball game right there i think the idea is to just get the yamahas more competitive with the other brands um i don't know man some racetracks you look at the lap times felt like our bikes the yamahas were every bit as good you know it they're not as consistently good but and obviously the indian's a superior motorcycle but i'm just yeah I'm, it, it'll be interesting to see i'm uh i'm kind of curious on how that all how that all plays out man that'll be that'll be interesting i like i said i'm not a i'm not totally f- into all the the technical aspects thankfully uh my team kind of they have to worry about that more than i do i just get the ride but definitely crossed my mind when i saw it and another thing too i Two other rules I thought we'd touch upon are um, they're mandating mouth guards and airbag suits in all the classes. So I love it, man. I really do. Anything to enhance safety, I don't see why anybody would be against that. I'm real big on the mouth guards. I wear them. Um, I think they're great. I think they help with concussions. I think they help with a lot of stuff, man, and I think they're good. And they're inexpensive. They're 30 bucks. Hit me up. I'll, uh, I'll lead you in the right direction. And then the airbag suits, I think, 
complete game changer. I wouldn't race without it. I'd retire before I race without it. My Tech Air Alpine Star suit, man, I just I wouldn't do it. I think it's super cool that they're going to mandate it. Yeah, I'm sold on uh, you know on the airbag suits for sure. I think they're they're pretty cool. I I seen them you know I seen them work and uh, save save some injuries. So, I mean, anytime you, you you know you can you can add safety like that, it prevents injury. I mean, how could you not be for it? Yeah, I wish it was around when I was racing. Yep, and then uh, they're shortening the Super Twins races by two minutes on the TT and half miles. Thank God, because 35 <laughs> laps, dude. Yeah, did we, there, there was like some 37, 38s, weren't there? Wasn't like Volusia, like 37 or 38 or something? Yeah, and Texas or whatever. <laughs> At that point, you're just praying that nobody gets a mechanical because the races are so spread out. It's like, <sighs> that was a good move. Good move. I don't see anything I hate, really. I don't know. No, two two minutes. So you got to think, how many laps would that be? Depend. I mean, I know it's going to vary where you're at, but it's just like just twenty, two, just say like 20, 20, 20 second laps. Yeah, twenty second really laps. Slow. So that's six laps shorter. So you know, some some half miles could 31. be around. Thirty one. Right. Yeah, 30, yeah 30. six laps. Yeah, yeah. I'm cool with like thirty ish laps, but thirty seven, thirty eight. That's too much. Yeah, that that's a couple of those got a little drawn out. Well, the racing started to really pick up at the end of the year, but you know, in the Super Twins, but that first, you know, Volusia, man, that was a long main event. It was just like, yeah, you know, it's like, just watching. I mean, I'll take thirty-eight laps in our class. I'll take the more the merrier, man. But I uh, that'd, be, that'd be an advantage for you, actually. No, I'd be all for it, but I don't think. Um, the racing's not as good. Like it, it kind of gets spread out, even in our class, a little bit. I mean, the singles class it might work, but all the classes get they get spread out a little bit. So just that point of it, it's too many laps. But that'd be a brutal yeah. four fifty main thirty eight laps. Can you imagine that? You imagine imagine how many front ends will get sawed off in that oh my lap race, dude. Man, um, yeah. I, I think that's all I got for this intro, man. I think we can give a uh, Kevin Schwantz a call, get him on the line, and. Chat with world champ number two on the podcast. Carter, give Kevin Schwantz a call. Let's chat with him. Yes, sir. Hello. Kevin Schwantz, Corey Texter, Sammy Sabedra. How you doing, man? Happy to have you on our show. Golly, it's 5 o'clock, isn't it? <laughs> 5 o'clock in Texas. <laughs> How's it going? Uh, good. I'm on my bicycle, but I'm... Hundred yards from my house. Let me sit down. <laughs> we got the stopwatch on you. <laughs> uh, my first lap, Tara was with me, and we did fifteen thirty-four, and then I did a fourteen oh eight full four-mile loop we had down here at the coast. Ah, I love it. The stopwatch actually yeah. was on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everything that happens happens with a stopwatch. And- <laughs> Dude, I'm with you. Everything's competitive. That's racer mentality. I'm, I'm good. I'm back home. All right, cool. Well, let's get into it. We're road racing fans right. too, man, and we're happy to have you. Thanks. It's great to be on. It's right, really Jimmy. cool to talk to, uh, you know, uh, uh, someone uh, of, of your caliber, a, a world champion. It's not too often that, you know, we get to talk to a world champion. So we really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. And I guess we're, we're kind of excited to get just right into it. Right, Corey? Yeah, let's do it. Well, yeah. we had Wayne Rainey on last week, man. And during the interview, it got me thinking. I'm like, we got to have Schwantz on next. We had Wayne on now. We got to have <laughs> 
got to have Kevin on, man. So um, we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. But want to talk about your early days, kind of how you got started. Um, I read you started riding trials and then you became a, a top motocross racer and you had a serious crash training for Supercross. I think it was 1982 or 1983. And then you decided to change disciplines and go, ro- and go road racing. So talk about that part of your life a little bit, and how that whole, whole thing started. Yeah, well, my parents, I grew up at a Yamaha shop. My parents were motor, Yamaha motorcycle dealer from 1964, the year I was born. And both parents worked at the dealership. So when I, when I started going to school, I got old enough to go to school. Where I went after school was to the shop. Mom and dad both worked until it closed at 6.30 or 7.30, depending on what night it was. So if I hadn't gotten in trouble at school, I got to ride my motorcycle when I was done with my homework. And... And I think I rode my mini, my first mini bike when I was three years old, a little Bonanza mini bike with a Briggs and Stratton engine. I went from there to trials. My dad was a big trials rider. We also sold OSA motorcycles, so they were a big trials bike manufacturer. And trials was the first competition I ever rode. And I think um, a lot that I learned on trials helped me in, in absolutely everything I tried to do, whether it was some amateur dirt track. You know, they raced that at Houston Astrodome short track and TT and typically on Sunday after the, the, the two races they would run amateur stuff and I, I rode that I'm thinking 81, 82, 83 something like that my uncle's TT 500 I, I rode it as a TT bike and I short tracked his, his 250 dirt tracker and and then I, I tried to ride my motocross bike one year for a 250 TT bike and I uh, forgot to put gearbox oil in it, so it didn't last very long. So I ended up putting a front wheel on his short tractor that had a front brake on it and left the low pipe on it and, dirt- and TT'd that thing. Just just one right-hander, so all I do is run it in there, grab the compression, and throw it up on the pipe, let it get around a little bit. And I forget. I don't think I won the 250 TT, but I'd always win one or two classes of the four that I rode. So I, and I played around on dirt track when my uncle would start getting ready to dirt track racing at the start of the season he was national number 34 daryl hurst from oh yeah i think 78 to 82 yeah we're we're familiar uh, with uh your uncle we're gonna bring him up in later on but that's uh that's that's awesome you did you did it all and then like i like i was saying you had a a pretty bad injury training for supercross i rode the i rode the houston super i rode the houston supercross 82 83 and in 82 i went he in my last chance and didn't make the main and in 83 in my heat race i got a really good start i was second into the first turn in my heat behind mike bell and i tried to follow him and what he was doing for about three quarters of a lap until it sent me freaking into and over the bars <laughs> through the tunnel remember the old supercross had an over under <laughs> yeah i remember those yeah <laughs> So I ended through the tunnel on a big, just a big kicker that there was on the other side of it. And uh, I decided, you know what, my parents, I graduated high school, 82, and my parents said, this dealership's going to be yours one day, so you need to come back here. And you, you can't go train five days a week. you gotta, you got to work, and then you can race on the weekends. And I realized pretty quickly at that level that you're going to have to be full-time to even I was for sure going to have to be full time to try and try and get to that next level. So I, uh, I gave up supercross and at the end of 83, some buddies of mine said, Hey, why don't you come try road racing? I'm like, road racing. You gotta be kidding. That can't be any fun. 
anyway, I went and rode an endurance race with him at Texas World Speedway. And um, by the end of the hour that I rode the bike, and about I think I had about 30 minutes of practice on it, I was as fast as the guys who'd been racing for 10 years. And I thought, this 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 all kind of seems too easy to me. So I went back home and told my mom and dad that I wanted to start road racing. There was a great little local series. I could go just race on the weekends and not, and didn't feel like it was something that I needed to practice and train too much for. So, you know, it wouldn't take me away from being at the shop during the week. And they agreed to let me have an FJ 600 to race for the season. That was 1984. And in that I raced against John Ulrich in some of the weir endurance races that we did. And at the end of 84, Suzuki, Yoshimura Suzuki was looking to replace Wes Cooley. And John went to bat for me at Yosh and said, hey, you got to give this kid from Texas a try. He can fucking ride the wheels off a 600. But, you know, I've never seen him on a big bike. So John took me to Willow Springs a, a weekend before I was supposed to do the, uh, an AFM race into the season. I forget, Kirker Superbike Series or something. Anyway, John took me out let me ride his endurance bike at Willow. 1150, you know, big brakes, slicks, all that stuff. I broke, uh, I went faster than any of his riders had ever been around Willow on it, which was a pretty good start. And I had ridden the 24 hours of Willow in 1984 on the FJ600 that I had. Me and four of my buddies went out and teamed up and finished second, second overall uh, at, at the 24 hours of Willow between Vance and behind Vance and Hines on their SD750 Yamaha. So uh, at the tryout, Yo shows up. I get no practice. And I get, I get on the bike and go out to start a lap of practice as I come around the checkered flags out. So I get a, I get a lap of, of the track. Luckily, I already knew it in the race. Uh, of course, hadn't practiced to start on a big bike with a dry clutch. Stalled the bike, didn't I? <laughs> somebody I, I jump off i jump off try and push start it won't start try and push it again won't start about the time i hear somebody go get on the bike and uh so i jump on the bike somebody shoves me i get the thing bumped off i still come back and i win that race i break at the time what was the ama superbike track record in the process so when i get in from that eight lap race the yosh guys are just freaking all beside themselves there was another race to come, which is the Kirker. That was the F1 race, and then I had just then I stalled the bike, and then there was the 750 Superbike race, which is the kind of the premier class uh, at, at the time. And in that race, I didn't stall the bike. I got a decent start from the back row, and in a couple laps, I was at the front and just kind of checked out from the guys. I think set lap record again. Um, anyway, so that's how I got involved in Yosh, but it's funny because not ever having road race road race at road race in texas in austin we used to have a race called austin aqua festival and you race through the streets of downtown austin down this one street through the median through a parking lot across curves and come back around and get back on the main street again and i'd run i'd run rode that once on my yz465 and i couldn't get enough gear stacked on it because it didn't have spool <laughs> wheels so the next year, I asked my uncle if I could borrow his dirt tractor. So I took his TT500, put some Goodyear Eagle uh, dirt track, super soft dirt track tires on it, and I mean, went out and just absolutely smoked everybody. <laughs> That's so awesome. I had been on I'd been on pavement before and liked it, uh, but then when I actually got got on my first proper road race or proper street bike, I uh, I enjoyed it even more. 
That's awesome. You know, I, I got to ask you, Kevin, you know, a lot of people, you know, when they think of, of you, they're going to think, you know, Yoshimura, Lucky Strike, Pepsi, world champion, you know, all the things that ev everyone, including myself, would think. But the one thing that a lot of people may not, you know, think of when, when, when they hear your name is you on an XR750 at Ascot. And uh, <laughs> I, I got to ask you about that, man, because, you know, we have a big dirt track following the show does. And uh, I'm sure that might come to a surprise to a lot of people. But you actually rode a national on an XR at Ascot, right? I did. I um, in, in 1986, Suzuki had the GSX-R750, and that was, that was the bike that I road raced. Well, I wanted to ride it in the F1 class road racing because there were a lot of tracks, some of the shorter tracks, I could just about get around and, and I could make some extra money because I think at the time I was getting paid a small salary, but prize money was a huge part of uh, my income. Suzuki said no. And I said, okay. I said, well, your contract says you have me exclusively for road racing. So I went to Bill Bartell and Mr. Bartell said, oh, Kevin, we'd love to have you on a dirt tracker. <laughs> and I think I rode, I rode Ascot, I rode San Jose, and I rode SAC. Phoenix. I think Phoenix was a was a mile or a half mile at the time. I don't remember. I think it was a mile. Anyway, I did those three races before, uh, and I did Phoenix first, San Jose second, and then Ascot third. And then Ascot, in I think between one and two, got in the bike, slid a little bit, and I when I put my foot down, my help my steel shoe slapped me in the back of the helmet, dislocated my hip. Ooh. So I, uh, I wasn't, uh, you know, and luckily enough, it, it wasn't. It was something that I, that actually did in my motorcycle career several different times. But it was something that didn't didn't mean I had to go to the hospital. I think it just was kind of an out and back in real quick. I kind of hyperextended, hurt like hell. But anyway, it didn't stop me from doing the road race that I needed to do the next next week or two, whenever it was. And I thought at that point I probably ought to focus on what's paying me money instead of just doing something that was fun. What what a testament to that brutal racetrack ascot, man. You rode it once Ooh. and you got a story to to <laughs> for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah makes, my uh makes you, makes, makes you respect that guy Sammy Tanner even more how fast he was there. Yeah, yeah I've heard he was a legend there. I, I just remember growing up, my dad would always talk about oh ascot back in the day, ascot. And I'm like, I've never I was like, Yeah, whatever, dude. Like, whatever, old man. And then he would and then the more I hear from legends that have raced there, it's like, wow, what a what a crazy racetrack. But um no, nah, that's interesting. I, I didn't know you rode Ascot. I um I wanna to touch a little bit about, you know, you rode AMA Superbike and then you went Grand Prix racing. You had success in both. Obviously you're a, a Grand Prix world champion. Um, what was that transition transition like um, for those listening from like AMA Superbike to Grand Prix? What was the hardest thing to kind of change? You know, was what, the 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 new racetracks, the different bikes, the competition? What was the biggest difference for that for that transition? You know, I think probably more than anything, just the lifestyle. You know, in, in racing Superbikes, you left on Thursday and you came home on Monday, so you were home all week. And you slept in your own bed, you know, on the weekends you stayed in a hotel. But once you went Grand Prix racing, it was out of a suitcase, I mean, pretty much 12 months a year. You only raced about nine or ten of the months, but the other two months, the, the sponsor kept you pretty busy doing stuff. So you were still traveling quite a bit. But 
that uh, that being out living out of a suitcase and just kind of checking out from everything that goes on at home. You know, all your friends that you grew up with, guys that you, you know, that you road race with as, as even amateurs or even professionals, um, you know, you, you didn't get to see them. It was out, you know, because back then there was no, there was, there were no ERTA tests. Manufacturers would go test anytime they wanted to rent a track. And a lot of times between Michelin and Dunlop, a lot of times the tire manufacturers say, hey, guys, we want to go test somewhere. So they'd take whichever teams and whichever riders. So, I mean, we stayed on the bike a lot of the time, and it was just busy, busy, busy. The transition from Superbike to Grand Prix bike for me wasn't that difficult. But let's remember in 1987, in 86, Suzuki came out with the GSXR. In 87, they got back into Grand Prix racing. They'd been, they hadn't been Grand Prix racing as a factory since 84. And back then it was a square four 500. In 87, they started to develop a V4 500. And, uh, so it was a brand new bike. And for lack of better description, it was friggin' slow. Um, so it was easy, easy to adjust from a four stroke that was, probably making 125 maybe 130 horsepower to a grand prix bike that was probably making 135 horsepower yeah it was lighter yeah the power was a little bit different but luckily because it was slow it didn't have a real big hit to it and it was it it was a really good handling bike as most slow bikes are was was that the the big bang motor no no back then it was they were uh they were, I forget what they called them before they went big. The Big Bang didn't happen until like 90, started 92, I think. Okay. Um, and just a real flat firing. I think three cylinders fired, and then the other one fired about 270 degrees later or something. I forget what the exact firing order was, but the Big Bang made a huge difference. But those, uh, those, those screamer motors, I think is what they used to call them, they'd come on at about, at about 10, and they'd shut off at about 11, eight, and, you know, maybe 9,500 if you had it jetted absolutely perfect, but it was just 2000 to maybe 21, 2200 at the most RPM of just a light switch, just boom, just as quick as it could happen. Man, you know, they, they, uh, I guess that's why they called those things the, the unrideables, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I got to, you know, there's a couple things. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things we want to talk to you about, but, um, you know, going back to those GP days, uh, obviously, you know, we had Wayne Rainey on the last show. I know you guys have nothing but a huge amount of respect for each other uh today and and i'm sure you did then too but back in in in, uh you know the golden era you guys were pretty uh like i mean headstrong rivals against each other right i mean how how intense was your your relationship you know on off the track with with rainy or and and was there anybody else that that kind of uh you, you had that same relationship with any other riders from the circuit absolutely nobody else out there mattered just beating him (laughs) um it's funny because in 86 i wrote i raced super bikes and he was there racing i think he rode a 250 and a 500 for bob mclean uh and in 87 he got he got the second honda ride beside fred merkel and uh he and fred were teammates and fred and i were buddies and i think that's the first wayne didn't like me because i was buddies with his teammate and, you know, away from the track, Fred and I, Fred, we'd go out, chase chicks, friggin' have fun, do whatever after the races, da 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 And Wayne was, you know, the perfectionist. 
And I think I think he didn't. He felt like I think I've heard him or read somewhere that he said uh, it seemed like to him I got everything too easy. I hadn't I hadn't been training for this since I was a kid and dirt tracking and this. I really have. I've been riding. I mean, maybe not in Southern California, not where everybody knew about it, but I did a whole bunch of riding leading up to you know getting the shot to, to ride the Yosh bike at Willow. Um, and you know I think at the time both of us had aspirations of just staying in the AMA as little time as we could and trying to, trying to continue on. You know, I, I was lucky enough when I first got on a superbike in 86, on a, on a factory superbike in 86, uh, at Daytona, Steve McLaughlin contacted me and said, Hey, do you want to come to the match races in England? And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, we, we got to find you a Suzuki to ride and you know, come over and you race the transatlantic match races. I was like, count me in, you know, that, the only place I'd ever been at that point was Japan. And uh, when I went to the match races in 86, Barry Sheen did the TV commentary in England. And Barry watched me race, and at the end of the races, I mean, at the end of every day, Barry came, hey, man, he goes, you're really riding well. You know, what, what are your plans for the future? You know, I got a contract for 87, for 87 with U.S. Suzuki. And he's like, we got to get you on a Grand Prix bike. You know, why don't you stick around for a couple of weeks after the match races, and I'll get one of my bikes out of the museum because he had last raced in 84, which is the last year the factory was involved. So he had a factory bike that had no hours on it. All it needed was just to be prepped to race. And he says, you know, we'll take you somewhere. We'll take you to Snatterton. We'll let you test. And then I want to, I want to get you, I want to get you in the race of the year at Mallory Park. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, of course, I'd freaking love to do all of that. Count me in no matter what. And uh, we went and tested. I, he said, you know, your test went really well. Your lap time's fast as anybody. Uh, you know, Mallory, you'll do great. It's a little bitty bull ring, you know, hard breaking, this, that tight chicane, a little bit dangerous, but I uh, went there and qualified okay, got to the front. And uh, when they had taken the bike out of the museum, the old magnesium throttle housing had, you know, had two cables on the back side, two cables on the front side. And when you would come back to, to, to the stop, if you went too far, the one cable or the other would loosen. And it popped two of the cables loose in the race, right at the end of the race. So all I had was two carburetors opening up and ended up finishing second to Roger Burnett. But um, there's a little pin that they aerodite, I think is the, the English term they use for it, that they stick in and then put some glue or something on it to stop the, stop you being able to go one way or the other too far with the throttle and let that happen. So, um, you know, my first race went well. Uh, he said, you know what? He goes, I'm going to Heron Suzuki, which is the British Suzuki distributor. We need to get you a, a van and a couple of mechanics, and you need to go do some Grand Prix whenever your schedule in America doesn't conflict. And I was like, say what? You know, <laughs> don't forget, just 1984, I just did my first season as an amateur road racer. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't say that, but that's what I'm thinking in the back of my head. But And you want me to go to Aston and do a Grand Prix? <laughs> yeah, okay, great. <laughs> got, got the budget from here, and I guess Japan probably contributed a little, because at that point, there was already talks about when my 87 contract was up, my next contract was with Japan. You know, I was going to ride for the factory, and I was going to be their Grand Prix guy, and da 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 So, 86 and 87, I rode three Grand Prix. I did Holland, Belgium, and Misano in 86, and I did Paul Ricard, I did uh, Le Mans. I did um, Monza, I think the only time I ever raced at Monza in my Grand Prix career, and then Misano at the end of 87. And then 88, I went Grand Prix racing full-time. But had I not taken that chance, 
and gone, oh, Steve, yeah, whatever, get me a bike. I don't care. I'll just go ride whatever. And, uh, you know, he got me a, a decent GSXR that, you know, you know, Michael Rudder, you know, the name TT, Macau, English yep. guy, just fat, really fast street street circuit guy. Uh, yeah. It was his dad's 85 GSXR 750 because the rest of the world got GSXR 750s in 85. We didn't get them in the U.S. until 1986 because of extra homologations and specifications and whatever that needed to be done to it. But anyway, I went and rode his bike, and it handled great. I loved it, and, you know, it was pretty fast. We got a couple sets of wheels donated to us. Somebody gave us some shocks, so we could have a couple shocks to work with. And, um, you know, went out there and scored more points than everybody else. We didn't win as a team, but I was the, uh, I was the high point scorer of all the riders, whether British or American. Oh, that's incredible, man. It's uh, it's really cool to hear that story. Did you um, like you had those those epic battles with Wayne throughout the years? You came through and you were world champion. I want to say it was I think it's nineteen ninety four, and then ninety three. Ninety three. Sorry about that. Ninety three. And then how many more years did did you race partial ninety four? Um, and then how did how did that happen? with your um, w- winning the championship, and then what was your kind of career, like how did that play out after that? Well, I, um, you know, when when Wayne got hurt, um, it was just like, I mean, it was like a big, big knife through the sail that was, you know, blowing me along. I uh, I had no motivation, didn't really care, you know, go out and win. It was great, I won, but whatever. It, it, it didn't really matter anymore. And wow. uh, I, I told Suzuki at the end of 93, I said, you guys, I'm going to do my best to come back and, and be fighting fit for 94. But, you know, I might be a couple of races into it, and I might have to tell you guys I'm done. And they said, Kev, race as long as you want. If you want to do two races, five races, ten races in, 80, in 94, do whatever you want to do. We're happy. We're happy. You, you're, we're happy you're there. And in 94, three weeks to the day before the first Grand Prix in Australia, I fell off my mountain bike and broke my arm. And now I've got to go to hospital, get surgery, got a plate put in it. But now I've got something to focus on to come back from. You know, I'm not, I'm not just sitting there thinking, fuck, Wayne Rainey's not here. Because, of course, everybody says, well, shit, you can't ride a bike. You probably can't ride a motorcycle anymore either. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I, I came back from that okay. one that ended up first couple Grand Prix. It wasn't great. Ended up winning the Japanese in 94. And about halfway through the season in Athens, fell off uh in practice yeah no and uh, it was used to be practice qualify on thursday and ass and practice qualify on friday and then race on saturday i fell in the qualifying session right at the end and dislocated my wrist on the arm that i had broken earlier that year and dislocated wrist i worked we worked on it all day friday got it set got it okay everything got a little splint built for it okay road warm up all right that felt pretty good i think i can race so I raced uh, about halfway through the race. It dislocated again. And that was just a, a big, uh, I mean, that, and that happened every weekend. I mean, then Sunday after the race, like in Aston, it was Saturday. Saturday after the race, back into the clinic, let them set it, wait a week till the next race or two weeks if we were lucky enough. But every time I got back on the bike, it kept dislocating. I had to get it in the next five races. I think I won the British, which was the last Grand Prix I won in, in my career. Uh, also, that was 94, went to Laguna and dislocated my hip. And at that point said, you know what? I think I'm done. 
And then something friggin' lit me up in, in, in the winter of 94. And I said, you know what? I got one more season left. And we got my wrists surgically fixed so that it was going to be stable. And uh, tried to race 95 and just was never in it. I mean, from um, the Japanese, you know, from Australia to Malaysia to Japan, I just, I was riding around looking at all the stuff that was dangerous. So, oh my God, look how close that wall is. Look how close the guardrail is in Japan. And in at the end of the end of the Grand Prix in Japan, we all got a plane home the next morning. Kenny and Kenny Roberts, Wayne Rainey, my dad and I were all on the same plane. And uh, Kenny came walking back. He said, "Hey, go sit up front. Wayne wants to talk to you." And Wayne sat me down beside him. He said, "Hey," he goes, "What the hell are you doing out there?" And of course, immediately, me taking advice from him. What? Yeah. I uh, I said, well, what do you mean, man? I'm out just out there racing, having fun. He goes, Swanson, he says, I can see it in your eyes. You're not having fun, buddy. He goes, and if you don't get out of it right now, you're going to end up hurt. Wow. And I said, wow. Hmm. We talked in probably another half hour or so, probably had a beer. <laughs> I went back and sat down with my dad. Um, Daryl Beatty and I were teammates in 95. And uh, BD had come back to Austin after the after the Japanese, and we had a week or two at home, did some mountain bike riding, did some motocross riding. Daryl got up. We were supposed to go to Jerez, Jerez, and we were going to go to Harama the weekend before and test. And uh, he got up, came walking into the house, got a guest house and, and the main house, and he came walking into the main house. He goes, "Damn!" He goes, "You going to Spain like that?" I said, "I'm fucking going anywhere, man. I don't know what you're talking about." <laughs> He said, what? I said, yeah. I said, I'll, I'll call Gary. I'll, I'll let everybody know. I'm done. I'm not, you know, I had two weeks to think about it. And I said, you know, I, um, I think, I think I've, I think I've raced my last lap. Uh, wow. Called and my, of course my parents at the start of the season, when, when the European round showed up, they flew over, got the motor home, which had been in storage, got it out, got it ready, drove to Spain. Um, to pick me up at the airport so we'd go test and then go to the Grand Prix. So I called them first and then I called then I called the team manager, Gary Taylor. And uh he said, Man, he goes, Whenever whenever you're ready to come back, we got a bike to be sitting right there waiting for you. I said, Gary, go ahead and put somebody on that submit because they ain't coming back. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, and then, you know, a month later came back and announced my retirement, I think at Magello, June something, June tenth mm. of ninety five. Well, you Just stayed for my thirty-first birthday. You stayed really active once you were were done as you know Kevin Schwantz, the racer. You still did a lot of a lot of things you know within the sport. A lot of guys retire and they kind of vanish. You know, you don't hear from them anymore. But you know, you uh, you actually drove NASCAR a little bit, so that was pretty rad that you did that in the NASCAR Bush Series. So you had some success there, a few top ten finishes, and then. You uh you design racetracks from people that don't know you've uh you co-designed the Circuit of the Americas racetrack which is awesome because that track's badass so love that you, you had you stayed really involved is that just because you love the sport or you know what was your what was your uh, motivation after you hung it up you know as a racer what kept you going involved with the sport Well from when I when I quit the end of '95 I uh, went to Australia and spent as long as I could on my, on my visa. And I think it was 90 days at a time. And I go over and I drive, uh, they had a two liter series, which is basically British touring car. Um, and they had a NASCAR series. They had an, the Australian V8. 
I drove all those different cars uh, more more to try and get some experience in a NASCAR, uh, but also just driving stuff so that I get some seat time because I wanted to come back to America and, and try and race uh, in the Bush Grand National Series here. I um, I did that in 95, uh, end of 95, most of 96 and 97, came back home in 97 and decided to um, to pack up and move to Charlotte. I found a guy who was kind of tight on money and wanted to sell half his team. Um, so I bought part of a Bush Grand National team. More just at that point to think, you know what, maybe I can make this, turn this into a, you know, a lucrative business. And, uh, you know, just getting the feel of sponsors chasing sponsors, this, how much it all costs, da 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 da, da. And uh, got to come to find out the guy was, the single biggest crook in NASCAR, and I think I just read the other day, he's just just about to go down for fraud. I think he's about to do 40 years in prison. So, um, anyway, I won't I won't mention his name, but it was uh, it was not a pleasant experience being a team owner. And uh, he eventually said, "Well, shit," he goes, "Why are we paying these guys? You can drive the freaking car." Well, of course, threw me in the deep end, and I um I did four or five races the end of '97. I did. We went to 17 races in 98. I qualified for 14 of them. I was, I think, sixth at Daytona. I ran second at the Glen behind Ron Fellows until the engine blew up. Uh, you know, Homestead was, was decent. Uh, got taken out by a lapper. You know, just just the getting, getting more seat time thing, was get, things were getting better. And at the same time, I realized, you know what, this is just me spending my money to do it. And so I um, sold my house uh, that I lived in in Charlotte to Tony Stewart. I sold the team to Bill Amick. Uh, his son was Lyndon Amick, and Lyndon drove some Bush Grand National cars. Sold him the shop, the cars, my motorhome, everything. Left Charlotte at the end of 98 and came back home. And I got a call from my dear friend Larry Pegram. Oh. And, the wor- and the worm was trying to get a ride. I think it was late 99. And uh, he, or late 98, he was trying to get a ride with Karachi. And he said, you know, I, I think if I call him back and say, hey, I'm going to hire Kevin Schwantz to come be my, my rider coach, will, will you let me have a chance now? And, and, of course, Larry called him and told him. And he said, oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, bring Schwantz along. We'll, we'll give you we'll, – we'll let you have the ride for whatever it was. I don't know if sponsorship money Pegram had to bring or what. So I went and helped Larry for a year. And when I went back to the track, of course, I see all the Suzuki people. Like, hey, you know, you know, we thought you didn't want to be involved in racing. You want to be involved in racing? Come back and work with us. So, I worked with Pegram. I believe it was '99. It may have been 2000. Um, anyway, whatever it was, the next year I went back to work for Suzuki. And at the end of 2001, they had a GSXR 1000 intro at Road Atlanta that they invited me to, and I said, Yeah, sure, I'll come. Well, that's where I got roped into having the riding school that I had for the next 13 years as well. So, um, <laughs> you know, I had the Kevin Schwantz Suzuki school. And then after about 10 years of it, we had had to go get Honda to be able to continue the school because Suzuki was cutting back on the bikes they supplied us. And then basically everybody quit supplying funding. And so we shut the school down in 2013, into 2013. And since then, um, still done some stuff with Suzuki internationally, you know, some Japanese, some European stuff. Went back and rode the Suzuki 8 hour in 2013 and 14. I have no idea why, but I tried anyway. The first year we finished third, and I thought, hey, hey this is good. And, and the old man only had to ride an hour. So um, <laughs> in 2014, went back. I was more fit. I'd been riding thousands. I felt like I was on my game. 
and my teammate crashed the bike the first hour. I never even got to get on it. Uh, I thought that was a, a good reason to pull the plug. I was still doing some vintage racing up until 2017. And with that, um, you know, just had a guy in Australia at Eastern Creek come over the hill, try to pass me up the inside, basically locked up the front end on his matchless and cartwheeled over the back of me <laughs> to not hit me. At, at almost 100 miles an hour, and I, get, I just back up and think about that every time I want to go get back on something and do a race. He's like, I, it, it broke his arm, it broke his leg, it broke a bunch of ribs. I mean, he was a 52-year-old man, which is exact, exactly what I was at the time. And, I, and he spent the next two weeks in the hospital. And I thought, you know, I can still do everything I like to do. Maybe not as good as I used to be able to do it, but I, I, it's good enough to make me smile. So I'm I'm now officially retired from all types of motorcycle racing. That, that was it. Hey, hey you know, um, Kevin, you know, I, the, the show is called Tank Slapping, and, and sometimes we, we like to talk about some of the more off-the-wall kind of stuff, you know, that racers uh, deal with or go through or some of the wild and crazy stories. But uh, you mentioned a couple of names, you know, uh, and, and – during this conversation, you, you, you mentioned Fred Merkel and, and Barry Sheen, and I can't think of two guys that are, I mean, more of pl- like playboys than those guys. I mean, I'm sure you had to be around some wild parties. Who's uh, who, who throws a, a better party or, or who's a more wild and crazy guy to hang out with, Fred Merkel or Barry Sheen? You know, Merkel was definitely the crazier one. We uh, we had lots of fun back in the day racing superbikes, um, chasing chasing girls. He had a place in Newport. I had some friends had a place in Newport, so we kind of hung out down there. Good thing nobody ever found out where we were because we'd probably gotten uh, gotten in trouble for it. But um, you know, and Barry Barry was one, Barry was the one that just absolutely every girl there was was after him. And so just hanging, just kind of riding his coattails, there was always chicks everywhere. Um, you know, and it was, uh, it was always a treat to be around him. Cause he'd be like, Hey, come to the house. He goes, we'll get up and go get, a, get in the helicopter and we'll go fly it on. You know, you just never knew what was going to happen next with Barry. Fred was a little more predictable, but, um, yeah, you know, it was, yeah, I tell you where I think the wildest parties maybe happened. And that was up on, uh, Kashawa at the, at the Schobert residence after the Grand Prix or after superbike races, there was some late nights up there and some <laughs> card games and plenty of drinking going on. That's for sure. <laughs> I love it. I'm jealous, man. That sounds like a good time. Um, <laughs> do you, do you follow any of the MotoGP or flat track stuff today? Um, any riders you kind of look at or remind you of yourself a little bit? You know, I, of course, I keep up with the MotoGP stuff uh, to see Suzuki win the world championship again. Uh, first time since Kenny Jr. won it in 2000 is uh, is pretty special. I um, you know, I know how hard those guys at the factory work. I know how hard that team works. You know, they're just as good as everybody else out there. They're just such a small manufacturer compared to everybody else. It takes so much more time to get stuff done and make changes and just the development process seems to take a lot longer at Suzuki, but to see him back on form and, you know, it's a shot to win the constructors championship uh, this, this weekend is, is really special dirt track. Absolutely. Um, you know, I go to everyone. I get a chance to Tara and I drove up day uh, with my buddy, John Jacoby, and we went and watched the first Indy. We didn't stay for the second Indy, but uh, we came up, had dinner with some friends caught up and 
went out and watched the first Indy Mile. Uh, it was sure a lot of fun. We were in the pits for a minute until they they found out we were there. Then we got thrown out. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Kevin Schwantz getting thrown out of the pits? Like, what? <laughs> but, you know, it happened at Mid-Ohio once. I uh, I was there. I'd gone out to watch. I'd gone out to watch the worm practice, and uh, I was riding a scooter, and I went out without a helmet, and the officer said he swore he told me, Two times previous that weekend, get out, get off the bike right there. I'm taking you to jail. Lock me and my my girlfriend at the time was on the bag, and she said, "This is the most fucking ridiculous thing I've ever seen." This is not. We both got put in separate cop cars, and John Ulrich has photos of us from inside the paddock of me in the back of a cop car. <laughs> uh, uh, come, come 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 to find out they, they decided to let us stay and I said that's okay. I don't want to stay. I'm go I'll go get in my truck and I'll leave. Well yeah. I was oh, leaving yeah. of course I had to drive I had to drive back by that same policeman that had harassed me and I was driving a dually at the time and I tried to clip him with the fender. <laughs> and by the time I got to the main, I got to the main gate. I got stopped again, and they said, "Hey, we told you you could leave. You continue. We're not going to let you leave. We are going to take you to jail." <laughs> so, uh, no love lost with me and the Truman family at Mid Ohio. That's for sure. That's amazing. I was at a we raced in Dallas this year, and there was a police officer kind of like standing guard at the gate to go on the track. And I had like one foot over the line trying to watch the race before me to see what was going on, and. He started getting like super pissed. I'm like, relax, and he, ah, I I will handcuff you. I'm like, <laughs> I was like, well, shit, don't handcuff me. I got a race, bro. Uh, yeah, that's that's funny. Um, you got handcuffs with a, you got a little bigger chain so I can reach the ends of the bar. You can still. Handcuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah he's so mad. I was in front of this line. I'm like, dude, relax. Like, I'm good. Like, ah, oh, it was yeah, it was pretty funny. Eslick, he got a kick out of it. He he thought that was. We- thought that was funny we, we used to have a lot of fun after the grand prix you know most of the riders would stay in their motorhomes on the weekend so they didn't have to hassle with getting out of the track and fighting traffic and all that stuff so on saturday night in Aspen again or sunday night at most grand prix we'd all stick around we'd probably go have dinner with our team but then we'd be back at the motorhomes later and it was always a party in somebody's motorhome and we were setting fireworks off one night, and one of them had kind of a quick fuse, and I eat flinched and threw it up, and I'm like, holy shit, where'd that go in here? Boom! <laughs> well, Brainy's motorhome was right on the other side of mine, and it threw it over my motorhome, and it landed on his <laughs> awning and just blew a gargantuan hole in the thing. <laughs> I, uh, I had I had to hand carry a new a new canvas back for his canopy to the next Grand Prix on after I went home. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, just all kinds of funny stories. We used to we used to carry on. We used to, you know, the, the Swiss sidecar guys who were there early in the, in our career, always had the best friggin' bombs you could find. I mean, you could take a 55-gallon can, turn it over, <laughs> throw that thing underneath it, and it'd send it top of a telephone pole. <laughs> it was unbelievable. <laughs> and, and the police at the, at the circuit in Magello didn't like it one year, and I almost went to jail there, too, but... That's amazing. The Grand Prix scene wasn't quite ready for a Texan to be over there causing hell. That's that's amazing. Uh, well, we, we don't want to keep you too long. We got one more segment we do. It's called the higher low line. It's sort of a this or that. We'll ask you kind of yep. um, one or the other. And if you want to give a brief explanation, we'll take it. Um, all right. I'm going to start off with kind of a flat track one. You're picking one rider, uh, maybe somebody you, I don't know, liked watching the most are you going with scott parker or bubba schobert no ricky graham oh, ricky graham 
love it. I love it. He's one of my favorites too. Love oh that. man, he and I he and I used to hang out some too. He was a he was a cool cat. Man, I guarantee there's a couple party stories there too. <laughs> but, uh, all right, all right. Now this one's a, a little off the wall, but you know you're at a local racetrack. Would you rather do sign ups or tech inspection? Mm. I I guess it's probably tech. Kind of <laughs> too much paperwork for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm gonna go to. Uh, what what do you what do you call it these days? Is it is it Grand Prix or MotoGP? What what's the better name? Well, it's always a Grand Prix, I think. But you know, I guess it's their MotoGP bikes instead of. I mean, the class used to be called 500 Grand Prix, 500 CC Grand Prix class. So, um, yeah, I still think it's a Grand Prix for sure. Love it. All right, uh, we're we're going uh, famous Texans. Uh, Texan musicians here, and you have to eliminate one off the music charts. Willie Nelson or Janis Joplin? Uh, I, I guess I would. I never really got to see Janis. I've heard and listened to a lot of her music, but I, I really like Willie, so I'll keep Willie. <laughs> All right, for uh, for kind of more recent Texan road racers, who 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 did you root for more? Ben Spees or Colin Edwards? Well, I worked with Spees at Suzuki a bit uh, from, you know, when he first got to Yosh until he got to the factory team and, you know, all that. So I, I was there. Uh, I was in Aston when he won his one and only Grand Prix, and uh, I had left a little bit before the race was over. So I heard about it. The pilot on the plane told me what the results were. So that was a pretty special moment. Um Colin and I just we, we've never been never been really all that all that close. Not that I didn't always cheer for him, you know, hoping he could, you know, the Texan to win some Grand Prix and maybe a World Championship on the on something besides his superbike. Right. Yep. All right. One more Texas question for you, since I don't know why, but Texans are the proudest people I know. So I got to throw another Texas question at you. Uh, <laughs> what's better, Texas barbecue or Whataburger? Man, <laughs> these are hard, man. I, 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 that's a tough one. I, I really like a Whataburger with jalapenos on it, but man, the, the barbecue from the right spot—you uh, know, some of the good spot blacks or what city uh, in Texas has the best like barbecues? That. You know, Lockhart, about 20, 20 minutes down the toll road from Circuit of the Americas, is the best uh, best barbecue. There's probably four or five really good barbecue joints in Lockhart, and they're all—I mean—they're all amazing. Yeah, I, I miss going to Austin. That was the most fun city I've ever been in when we raced there. I—I I was up till six in the morning. Just I couldn't go to bed. I loved it. I was eating it up. It was so much fun. <laughs> Thanks again for uh, for for joining us and sharing some of the insight, man. It was really really interesting. Thanks, guys. Great. Thanks. Appreciate the opportunity. Yep. Thanks again, Kevin. We'll catch up with you hopefully soon. Talk soon. Bye. Yeah, Kevin Schwantz, man, another another world champ, dude. another just, world champ, man. I, I, we're just up. been bringing it. We're Who's bringing back? it. Kenny Who's, Roberts, yeah, Rossi. We, I, you know, we got to Yeah, well, Marquez. you know what? I, I, uh, we know who we have on our prospect list, and I, I'm just gonna say, you know, 
buckle up. We got some we got some good people coming up uh, in, in future episodes. But yeah, Rainey then Schwantz. I mean, those two back to back. Those guys were such you know you know bitter rivals in their day. So it was uh, it's pretty cool to have those guys back to back on the show. Man, and like I said, for Rainey, same with Schwantz. There's so much I could have asked them or talked about. Our list that we didn't go through is is still loaded with questions. I just I feel bad keeping these guys on, on the air just chatting with us. But uh, Kevin seems like a guy I'd want to hang out with and drink some beer with. So next time, I didn't. I wish I knew he was at Indy, man. I would have put him on my roster. I would have made him in, come in the pits. He got uh, kicked out of the pits at Indy. That's, <laughs> that's hilarious. I didn't, I've seen him a few times at, like, uh, I think it was Coda when we raced the National there. And I've seen him at a few races. But I've never – I don't think I've ever met Kevin in person, man. I, I'm going to make that uh, make that happen. Yeah, I, he's a guy I've never met. I think I've got his autograph once, maybe. And uh, I spotted him in the pits, actually, at Indy, like a long time back when they were doing the, the Indy GP that weekend. But uh, I spotted him at, you know, at Indy. Oh, I'm bummed. I wanted to ask him. He's a big fisherman. He fishes, like, every morning. And he's a Texan. I wanted to ask him if he fishes with Tolbert at all, man. I should have asked him. I had that on my list. Call him uh, back. Call him back. No, nah, yeah. Back. <laughs> yeah 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 that's funny yeah great show appreciate you guys once again for tuning in want to thank our sponsors and make it happen every week bell power sports check out bellhelmets.com to view their full line of products the quality and safety is unmatched if you start tank slapping you want to be protected by bell jerry stinchfield of roof systems in dallas texas commercial industrial roofing company commercial roof systems.net with nearly 40 years of experience jerry keeps the sport going and we definitely appreciate him for keeping the podcast going I want to give a shout out to our newest sponsor, DID Chains. They've been the driving force behind countless championships since 1933. Entrust DID quality chains and their winning tradition for your race program today. What drives you? Make sure you check them out on social media at DID Chains. And uh, and thank them for keeping this podcast going. It's definitely appreciated. The brand speaks for itself. They've won so many championships across many different disciplines. And uh, we appreciate them for coming on. And also another new sponsor we wanted to talk about, AIM Sports. They are the worldwide leader in motorsports data acquisition, displays, and sensors. Many top teams in American Flat Track and other series around the globe use AIM, including myself and the G&G racing team on our Yamaha MT-07 race bikes. Ben Lau uses their products. It's lap timers, data. It's super awesome, cool stuff. After you got the product, you're going to wish you had it for years. Uh, really good. I check, I check data after every session I'm out there. I come back, LJ pulls up the data, and we check it. It's been really useful for me. I've, I've become obsessed with it, to be honest. So check them out on Facebook at AIM Sport Line and Instagram at AIM Sports Data or Data, however you pronounce it. That's a that's a debatable question there. But, no, nah, yeah, I, Sammy, great show, man. Yeah, yeah, awesome show. Uh, I'm loving these guests we're having. Of course, I love all our guests, but I'm really loving uh, talking to, you know, some guys that are uh, a little bit outside the flat track world. But it seems like, you know, every time we do, they're, they're, they're still – flat track stories there to be said and told and and uh just goes to show what what a great sport flat track is and how instrumental it is in um in people's you know careers outside of our own racing yeah i love it well appreciate you guys like i said tuning in we'll we'll touch touch base on our next show and hit us up social media i think that's all we got now sammy right we out that's that's it man toe time peace see ya (laughs) 
we got to say, this show is going to come out Thanksgiving. What's happening for Thanksgiving? Let's talk turkey. Corey, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? Is Thanksgiving this week? It's coming up, man. Yeah, Thursday, right? Is that this week or next week? Today's Thursday. The very next one coming around. Oh, shit. I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow, let alone <laughs> next Thursday, dude. You cooking the turkey or what? Nah, we're we're vegetarian, dude. Boy, my, uh, wife, my wife's vegan. A tofurkey. Barnsey brought a turkey over the other uh, day. He wanted at a uh, Sandy Hook mini GP, and he he's like, I put a turkey in your freezer. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, I want it. I was like, okay, like so random, but I don't know, man. We'll probably just keep it low key, eat some tofu, you know, just you yeah, know. Yeah, you did. You do the tofurkey. Yeah, tofurkey. Is that what happened, dude? Is that what? Is that what they hashtagged on American Flat Track? Was it Tofurkey? I did on the Insta. Yeah, they posted a uh, uh, a pic. They posted yeah. a picture of me, and then they hashtagged a weird. It, maybe that was like a vegan reference. I didn't even think about that. You're Tofurkey. Sure. She did. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, oh, she did. Yeah, Tofurkey. Tofurkey. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's amazing. That's fantastic. I didn't know that's what the all, hell that hashtag meant, and then you just said that. Track Insta. That's hilarious. Huge uh, shout out. Yeah, Tofurkey. <laughs> and then, dude, the whole shot it was so good in that photo. Somebody posted on Facebook. He jumped the start. I'm like, shut up. There's sensors. Was that at Texas? Where uh, is that at? Is that yeah? It's gotta be Texas or Williams Grove. That's not Williams Grove. No, it's Texas, and that's Texas, right? I'm looking I don't at know. how bad is that? The yeah, hell, whole shot though, baby. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, I just thought that was funny. Strong somebody, out the gate. <laughs> somebody claimed that I jumped. I was like, man, if you sneeze on that starting line, they send you to the back. I was like, it's all good. It's all legal. You know, you know what start. sucks? You know what sucks when you get sent to the back row because you get such a good start. You ever done that? You ever get like, oh, granted, dude. sometimes you know what I mean. It happens on accident, but you get the perfect start. Like you're, it's like your clutch lever controls the light. You ever had that happen? Honestly, they dude, you jump. I've okay. So besides the Milwaukee flat out Friday deal, what that's like the whole shot around the world where <laughs> I did. Yeah, that's I, the whole shot known around the world. Ask Bill world. Warner about it. He'll he'll tell you all about it. He still talks about it, dude. It's like, but like that, I did jump there, but it's an indoor and I was on the outside. So fuck yeah, I'm going to jump. I'm going to try and get into the first corner because it was a hundred hours to lead a lap. So I'm, and, I want and that. And it's an indoor. I get that. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. but, but like, dude, my starts are really good. Like obviously like if you watch the races, like I, I take a lot of pride in my whole shots. So like at races that don't have sensors, I get starts like that in the picture and I've been sent to the back maybe five or six times where I know I didn't jump and people claim that like I cove you, somebody went to Mike Poe this year and said, Hey, Corey oh, jumped yeah, in that right. semi. And I was like, my start, I get good starts. Everyone else just gets shitty starts. Like why penalize my good start? But it, without sensors, dude, it's like, that's right. I, I forgot about it's hard that. To state my, everyone's like, look how much farther ahead you are. I'm like, cause I got a good start. Like, I'm innocent. Uh, you know yeah. what the worst is though, it sucks. is when you do that, when you, when you don't jump, but you like, you let the clutch out, you creep. And then it seems like as soon as you stop, that also controls the green light. It's like, damn it. <laughs> yeah, dude. Whole shots. I tell my kids, man, you go to the races to whole shot. And while you're, while you're there, you race. Like, go there to whole shot and then race after you do that. Like, 
don't even think about turning left into that first corner. All you focus on is getting off the line because in flat track, especially on a lot of the tracks we race at, if you don't get a good start, you can be the fastest guy there. You'll get 10th. So, so true. I, and so you can true. only teach kids so much because reaction time is important. But, yeah, I just thought that that was funny. You said Tofurky. I'm like, wait a minute. That's what that meant. 